Good afternoon and welcome back to another week in the Square Mile. This is the City View podcast. I'm Andy Sylvester, the editor at City AM. And in a few minutes, I'll be joined by Stefan Boschia, our rather brilliant travelling political correspondent. He's been in Australia for the last three weeks following the Australian election. We'll talk about the political scene down there as well as the windfall tax back here. Uh, But first, the corporate headlines and the economic headlines. And the governor of the Bank of England has pushed back at comments by a predecessor that the bank's actually during the pandemic has helped push inflation to 40-year highs. Andrew Bailey instead pointed to a reduction in the UK's workforce as a much more likely cause of high inflation. What I reject is the argument that in our response to COVID, the bank's monetary policy committee let demand get out of hand and thus stoked inflation, he said in a speech in Vienna, hosted by the Austrian Central Bank. The facts, he said, simply do not support this. He said that GDP is only just a little higher than it was before COVID, and if the pandemic had not happened, it probably has been substantially higher. However, Bailey did say, what we do have is a very tight labour market. That does not look like a story about rapid demand growth. Interesting comments we will come back to. Uh, Grosvenor, the property giant owned by the Duke of Westminster, has jumped back to a profit as returning shoppers, tourists and office workers help drive its recovery. The company, which also has investments in food and agri-tech, reported just around a half a billion pre-tax profit in 2021 after a tumbling to a £300 million loss in the previous year. Grosvenor said a partial recovery in economic conditions and the loosening of pandemic restrictions had pushed its property revenues higher. Uh, Mark Preston, chief executive of the business, said despite ongoing restrictions and lockdowns remaining a feature across our markets, decisive action in response coupled with an improving economic environment helped us achieve a significantly improved financial performance. Meanwhile, facial recognition technology firm Clearview AI has been fined more than $7.5 million in order to delete all data gathered from people in the UK after an investigation into its practices. The firm has collected billions of images of people's faces and data from publicly available information on the internet, including social media platforms, for use in facial recognition software. Alongside the fine and data deletion order, the Information Commissioner's Office said it had also issued an enforcement notice against the company, ordering it to stop obtaining and using the person data of UK residents publicly available on the internet. And fashion chain Ted Baker has picked a preferred bidder as it presses ahead with sale plans, but revealed private equity suitor Sycamore has pulled out the running. The retailer, which has nearly 400 locations, said its chosen bidder would now go through the books as part of a so-called confirmatory due diligence process set to take several weeks. Ted Baker stressed there was still no certainty that an offer will be made, nor as to the terms on which any offer will be made. It did not give a reason for the decision by Sycamore to bow out, although the third approach by the private equity giant Sycamore now rejected valued Ted Baker at around $254 million. Um, plenty of other corporate news around. Good news from B&Q owner Kingfisher, uh, although signs that the DIY boom may be beginning to lag. Um, but really, many eyes on Westminster um, this week, but we're actually going to start down under with Stefan. Um Stefani been in Oz for three weeks following the the Aussie election, as well as, you know, catching up with family and all the other things that Australians stuck in London for a pandemic uh, are desperate to do. Um, talk us through the results at the weekend uh, at, the, at the election down under, and I guess give us a little bit of a steer on what it might mean for Australia's sort of role in the world, I guess. 
Yeah, no, no thanks, Andy. It's um, very nice to get back there. And, and, you know, for a political nerd like myself, it was a very pleasing time to uh, get around and see the, the campaign. So uh, Labor won. The Australian Labor Party won the election uh, fairly easily in the end. Um, and they look like they're going to form a majority government. And that would be the first time they've been in power since 2013 after a nine-year run of the centre-right coalition, uh, Liberal National Coalition. And it was a very odd election because... Um, while Labor you know, looks like they're going to get a majority, they actually had a very low primary vote. Only about one in three people actually voted for them with their first preference. And, um, you know, Scott Morrison, the XPM, his party lost mostly through a complete erosion of their sort of uh, metropolitan base in cities like Melbourne and Sydney. You know, a lot of traditional, uh, you know, sort of small C conservatives who, you know, like low taxes but are a bit more socially progressive really abandoned the party and have left them with their uh, lowest amount of seats in 40 years. But in terms of, you know, Anthony Albanese, the new prime minister, he's um, a staunch Labor man. He used to be uh, in the left of the party. He's now a more moderate sort of consensus figure. And he's said, you know, straight away he wants to make Australia a renewable energy superpower, Mm -hmm. which has been, you know, something that – you know, Australia's lagged behind for a long time and it's been, you know, this is the first election where people have really voted on climate change after a series of terrible floods and, yeah, and sure. fires and it's, you know, finally become an issue where people want a lot of change in that uh, in that area. In terms of, you know, how it affects Britain, uh, he's said very clearly today that um, in a call with Boris that he wants to, you know, explore the um, opportunities of trade and the trade mm. deal and has no intentions of uh, you know, sort of winding that back in any sense. And he's, you know, promised to be very strong on defence and is very committed to the new AUKUS uh, nuclear submarine program that the UK and um, US and Australia are part of. So in, in many ways, I think, you know, internationally and foreign policy would be very um, much uh, more of the same, but with more socially progressive domestic policies, really. Yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting to hear kind of on the trade side, obviously, with the UK hat on. Because there's no question that Boris Johnson's government in particular has invested quite a lot of time and effort in in cultivating Scott Morrison or ScoMo's government. But I guess so many of the trade ties that you form during any kind of negotiations, even in the stages that they're in now, naturally happen slightly lower down the chain, civil servants that, that, that will just continue. So in that sense, a good sign. I guess, you know, putting your sort of pundit hat on... Um, are there other lessons maybe that Boris could be learning, the UK Conservative Party could be learning about their own metropolitan base over here? Because we've, you know, we've written, you know, at length about what we saw towards the back end of, of last year, the Tories hemorrhaging sport in the southeast, um, losing some of that sort of Osborne, Cameron, Tory coalition, in fact, chasing the Red Wall. Is there a world in which ScoMo's defeat, you know, should should at least have somebody in Downing Street saying, well, hang on, we can't, can't chase the Red Wall forever. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. And, you know, there's a, there are a lot of uh, similarities between the Australian Liberal Party and the um, UK Tory Party. For instance, their stri- strategists are literally the same people from the same company. <laughs> I mean, they're all acolytes of a bloke called Linton Crosby and he has a company in the UK and he – a political uh, lobbying company in the UK and he's ran campaigns for Cameron, May, Boris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his acolytes are running campaigns in Australia as well for the Liberal Party. And – you know, the similarities don't end there, really. I mean, as I said before, Morrison lost his, you know, sort of uh, traditional base of, you know, affluent, low-tax-loving sort of, um, you know, family-oriented people. And, you know, we see these same sort of uh, demographics and these same sort of groups in the home counties, in southern shires, you know, these sort of people who are 
fiscally conservative, but also Remainers, increasingly socially progressive. Mm. And these are people who I think feel increasingly ignored by by Boris, I mean, on many levels. The fact that he's high taxing, the fact that he's the Brexiteer in chief, mm-hmm. the fact that he's really willing to play the culture wars and increasingly mm-hmm. so, I think, over the last few months. You've seen him talk about, you know, trans people in sport and, you know, Oliver mm-hmm. Dowd and the Tory party chair is, you know, and, and Nadine Dory as a culture secretary are both, you know, launching a war on woke. And I think that these sort of things, I think, are not what the not, you know, issues that voters in traditional Tory bases want to talk about. It's not mm. what they care about. And I think there's a personal dislike for Boris, mm. as there's a, a steep personal dislike for uh, Scott Morrison, who um who is someone who was seen as a sort of brash, loudmouth, um, you know, sort of chancer, which and I'm sure a lot of people have said uh, similar about Boris. Um, let's talk about Boris for a bit more. He's got an interesting political uh, conundrum on his plate around the so-called windfall tax, basically whether or not to levy a, a, essentially a one-off tax raid on, on energy companies, particularly North Sea oil companies, particularly BP and Shell. Um, it seems from reporting, not just that you've done, but others have done, that there is a bit of a split at the top of the Tory party, knowing that they have to do, quote-unquote, something on the cost of living crisis, but not necessarily knowing what the impact of a a windfall tax, basically a tax raid, would be because there's a sort of working theory that in the very short term it doesn't actually massively impact BP and Shell. They weren't pricing in these profits. They're not investing on these profits, et cetera, et cetera. But what it says about Britain and and global Britain and and Britain as a place to do business. It's an astonishing one because, as you said, I've been away for a couple of weeks. And before I left, I mean, this was a Labour policy that the Tories were laughing down and said, you know, that's a terrible idea. I've come back and all of a sudden it looks like it's a done deal. Um, mm. The briefing to the papers on Sunday was that Rishi um, is full steam ahead on it and it looks increasingly like Boris, who's um, after some initial hesitation, is uh, backing it. The one, you know, sort of way that they're trying to couch it as a more conservative policy is by giving tax concessions um, to large uh, energy firms that do invest in new factories and that would obviously solve the problem of mm. low business investment in the UK while also trying to stimulate the economy. I think that, you know, on, on the political side, I think they could probably get it through Parliament only through the help of Labour, which would be a terrible look for them. And mm. Right now there's about 60 MPs in the Tory party in a net zero scrutiny group there, you know, wouldn't say climate change. Well, some of them probably climate change deniers. Well, other <laughs> ones are just a bit concerned about the cost of, mm. of net zero. Th- this is a, a big rump of MPs that will have will not vote for any windfall tax, you know, and I think a lot of conservatives just generally in the party would be very, um, very upset with it. I think that um, the one, uh, you know, saving grace that uh, they may have is that um, a lot of people in their constituencies and Tory MP constituencies may be saying, well, you've got to do something to help us out with what's coming increasingly um, tough uh, tough conditions. Yeah, it's really tough economically out there for a lot of people. There's no question about that. And maybe special times create special uh, special rules for the Tory party. And as we all know, this isn't this isn't your, your dad's Tory party anymore. It's certainly not the low-tax, small-government Tory party that it might once have been. Um, Stefan, great to have you back in the office and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Cheers. And that's all from us at the City View Podcast as we head back to another week of the Square Mile. Hope the weather stays like this. We'll see you again tomorrow.